Hello and welcome to the Mental Health Crossroads podcast, where we explore the intersection of mental health and developmental disabilities. This is part two of our interview with self-advocate James Steed. If you haven't listened to part one, stop right now and go to the show notes where we've linked that episode. You can also find it wherever you've been getting your podcasts. If you're ready for part two, thank you for joining us. This is a this is a little bit of a curveball question, but how okay. much of these how many of these struggles with right getting appropriate care, uh, mental health supports? Do you think was related to just the state of Idaho? Idaho is a rural state with a a less developed mental health infrastructure. Um, and I don't know, even know if you're prepared to answer that question, but well, um, it's not just Idaho. Yeah, <laughs> it's not just Idaho. Remember, I spent. I told you that, you know, I spent eight, you know, it was actually eight years yep. in Washington. Yep. And so when I went to get mental health counselors there, they misdiagnosed me there also. And yes, sure, I wasn't as confident as I am now or even 10 years ago, but they misdiagnosed me there too. They thought it was my self-esteem, my low self-worth. Yeah. They had no, they didn't recognize it as any type of mental health disorder at all so that you just because idaho was a rural state does not mean it wasn't it was misdiagnosed just in idaho it wasn't spokane washington also yeah yeah that's interesting well and eastern washington is very similar to idaho right (laughs) (laughs) don't tell people from spokane that (laughs) okay i I'll, i'll i'll keep it to myself <laughs> and whoever listens to the podcast exactly <laughs> yeah. better hope it's not somebody from washington i know <laughs> so you mentioned that you finally were able to get a diagnosis and get right the supports that you needed for your mental health about 10 to 15 years ago what are some of the strategies that you found are effective in supporting your mental health getting up and doing things, um, basically doing things like this, uh, feeling, uh, feeling like I've got something going, uh, that, um, I'm not bored. Okay. Boredom for me is a trigger mm-hmm. and, um, in a facility, believe it or not, there's always something going on. Mm. So you're not bored. <laughs> you know, there's always something going on. If you, uh, you know, I cruise around in my power chair all over the place and there's always something going on, always somebody, somebody that uh, I don't know what, you, I, I don't want to say BS with, but to, to talk with, you know, and to hear a joke or, or ask them how their day is, whether it be a resident or a staff member or even a resident's uh, guest. Mm. So there's always someone that I can interact with or or whatever yeah there are times that i am with myself and i play games or i watch tv but i do not i'll be honest with you i'll spend maybe 30 minutes watching a show and then i pause it leave for 10 or 15 minutes and cruise around so it's it's basically keeping my mind busy Mm -hmm. that part of my uh that part of my body i have to keep my mind busy. 
people. And it seems like part of it's also social, right? That need to connect. Oh, yeah. It's a big social thing. And it really is. It really is. Um, I'll be totally honest. It is. I love being around people. I, you know, people once said, uh, I've had somebody say, you know, you're good for this person or you're good for that person. Having that person, you know, you being in their lives. And what they don't realize is it's a symbiotic relationship. They have done wonders for being in, for them being in my life. Uh, so for them to say that to me, it's like, you guys don't get it. <laughs> this is not something wow and amazing. And, oh, look how this person's come out of their shell. This is going like, dude, this is a symbiotic relationship here. What I have done for them, they have done for me. Yeah. Well, and I know there's lots of self-advocates in Idaho, right? You were, you were a a tremendous mentor to many of the younger folks. And um, I know that you had a, a tremendous impact on right their their ability to speak up and to really take control. And I, I you know, although I know that you, it is a symbiotic relationship, um, I don't want to downplay the fact that, you know, your confidence and your voice has been really important to building self-advocacy in Idaho and well and now in Utah. Well I, well I thank you for that and I really appreciate that. But um as I help their self-advocacy, they help mine. Yeah. Yeah. Well and that's that's an important aspect of resilience, right? We we know from the research that that social support, feeling needed, feeling like someone's there to listen to you, that there's somebody to talk to who gets it. Um, is really important to um, to supporting our own mental health and to making us be able to you know handle challenging challenging things. I ran a program community a bit slash community center uh, for Life Incorporated. Actually, my uh, I actually got paid for this job, and what it did was it brought people with uh, mental health. Uh, physical disabilities, uh, developmental disabilities, intellectual disabilities together. And my hope was that number one, uh, that we'd all get together, that we'd, no- we'd realize that we had a support system in ourselves. And then taking that support system and not only having fun together, you know, like bingo, bowling and all kinds of stuff, um, but also giving back to the community. We did a number of fundraisers for breast cancer awareness, car washes for people that were injured. We did uh, chili feeds and, uh, and uh, chicken noodle soup things. This one gentleman had to have a, uh, a major su- surgery uh, in, in Seattle for his, uh, for his brain because he kept having seizures. And we had a big uh, chicken noodle soup fundraiser, and we called it uh, Chicken Noodle for Kenny's Noodle. You know, and <laughs> and um, so we gave back to the community because of the fact we wanted to show that people with disabilities, all types of disabilities, whatever the gambit was, could give back to the community also. That is so incredibly important. There's this perception, I think, out there, right, that and unfortunately, it, it still persists in some communities that people with disabilities are always taking. 
And I like how you turn that on its head, right? And, you know, really tried to subvert those, those expectations by giving back. That's, I would expect nothing less, James. <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> so what's, what has been your biggest mental health challenge during the COVID pandemic? I mean, oh, you've, been, boy. you've been locked up and isolated. So some of that social stuff hasn't been available. So what is what has been your biggest struggle over the last year and a half? More than likely the depression and some things that I did that were, and I don't want to go into detail with this, yeah. but I got addicted to something that I shouldn't have. And it actually almost got me in trouble with uh, all kinds of things. Um, So I needed to get away from that. I needed to, and it was kind of hard to do being in here and being in here precipitated that, if you will. I I don't know whether that's the correct word. So it was kind of tough. And so I got really depressed. And they moved around my medications and those medications, you know, like, for example, I'm finally on a good medication that has kind of really balanced me out and I feel great. But the only problem is I'm hungrier than the gutted cart. So I gained back 40 pounds of the weight that I lost. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's the problem. It's like, oh, dude, come on. (laughs) but you know so it's it's kind of balancing things i almost want to see if there's a possibility of going somewhere and getting my meds adjusted or something like that you know or maybe even looking into you know because i'm a big guy i would be considered i mean and i'll say it right here i would be considered someone who is morbidly obese okay let's be honest and so I, I may end up going and getting the lap band or something like that. Yep. Um, but we got to do something about the, the weight thing. And now that I'm more conscious of it, because I didn't even know. I mean, you're just, you're just hungry. You don't even think about it, you know? And now that I know, I'm, I'm more conscious of it. And so is my doctor. Yeah. Well, that's, yeah, that's always the hard part with some of those medications um, is they can have side effects that impact. You know, what's weird is even when people, even when some of the aides here or some of the nurses find out that I have a mental health disorder, Mm -hmm. they treat me differently. Isn't that weird? I've never seen that before in my life. And it's kind of like, wait a minute. You know, so what do you mean by treat you differently? What does what does that look like? Uh, they're more guarded. Oh, okay. Yeah, they're more guarded. You know, mm-hmm. and, and a lot of that is because when they have these shootings and, and, and things like that, the first thing they go to, oh, gun control. And we need better mental health, you know, because this person has had a mental health disorder. And that's correct. But that doesn't mean everyone that has a mental health disorder is going to do something like that. Right. There is no way. We're not all killers. We're not all on edge and ready to hit somebody or hurt somebody, you know? 
And that's the one thing that I've really been, has really heightened my senses since I've found out that I have a mental health disorder. Huh. The, 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 uh, the, stig- the stigma of they could be dangerous. They could go off at any time or, you know, being very, very standoffish because, oh, they have a mental health disorder. Yeah. That's, it's interesting that you bring that up because uh, there were a couple of, well, actually it was last, well, no, it was before COVID. It was right before COVID. Um, I was on a panel with uh, the police department and with several community advocacy organizations about gun control. Um, and they wanted me there to talk about right mental health and gun control and um, we got in a huge debate around, you know, the fact that you have a mental health disorder uh, or a mental health diagnosis doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be violent. Um, and I got in trouble. I actually got quoted in the newspaper. <laughs> it made it in the article in the newspaper. I said, just, just because you're an asshole doesn't mean that you have a mental health disorder. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and yet exactly. there's that assumption, right? That right if you're violent if you're angry or whatever that there must be something wrong with you and it, it it does reflect i think on the way that people perceive things like depression and bipolar you know anxiety things like that they assume right you're gonna snap and and be violent and that's that is a complete false um understanding of what mental health issues are exactly exactly and and that- you know, I basically uh, had to, um, my manic is just not sleeping and believe it or not, cleaning and things like that. I don't get mad. I don't, I've there have been times when I've gotten angry, you know, when I was younger and stuff like that. But now it's, it's more just uh, being fidgety. Um, I even had my doctor when she first, one of the first few months that she started working with when the first three or four months she started working with me she goes well you're not manic and I said uh yeah I kind of am right now and I need some help because she didn't you know she was looking at manic at this big big something big is gonna happen you know that big um anger or whatever it is or going out and doing this major shopping spree or whatever it is right yeah and it wasn't like that it wasn't like that at all i mean other things happened of course like i said the the addiction that got me into trouble or the or the behavior that got me into trouble that that was a manic behavior yep yep and you're right yeah it looks different for everybody else you know not that that swing um, yeah, it, you can't generalize. It's an individual sort of a phenomenon. So what, what advice would you give other self-advocates who are maybe uh, trying to figure out how to support their own mental health? Um, I would tell them to get involved in programs or maybe even start a program with other self-advocates and other people with developmental disabilities or disabilities and those with mental health. Uh, Because the big thing is, is finding someone that understands what you're going through. 
it's interesting to realize that you are dual, you have a dual diagnosis. Um, because at times you feel alone, but then you look around and there have been a number of my friends that have been misdiagnosed, you know, that they, they figure it's their, their disability, uh, especially those with intellectual uh, disabilities. Oh, it's a behavior. Well, excuse me, but why are they having the behavior? It has nothing to do with an intellectual disability. My buddy's not doing that because he scored poorly on some SIBAR test that you had 20 years ago. His behavior is coming from something else. Maybe he's missing his brother, you know, uh, maybe he's, you know, whatever it is, it may um, not be from an intellectual disability. And that's the that that's the screwy thing for me is as I watched from that community center and whatnot, the fact of, and as I began to realize my my own mental health issues, when they would say, oh, that's uh, Charlie's uh, behavior. It's just a behavior. Well, here's a young man who happened to have autism and it's a pretty severe case. I don't know, you know, how they have, um, like if you have a, a, a ruler, they have certain degrees, like he had profound autism, let's say, and some uh, intellectual disabilities. And his family had some intellectual disabilities, but they were ashamed of Charlie. And so they would, and this is awful, but they would lock him in the, in, in the room with the dogs. Mm. And when he finally got out or free of that, and thank God, and I, I very seldom would say this. In fact, this is the only time I've ever said this, and I've said it in the past. Thank God for a sheltered workshop. <laughs> because they noticed what was going on and they got, they helped to get him out of that situation. But when they sit there and say to me that what he does, like throwing away his coat or whatever it was, that it's just a behavior, I'm kind of going, well, wait a minute. There's something else going on here. And you guys, you know, uh, what do they say? Uh, behavior is communication or something yeah. like that. Yep. Is that is that the correct words? That is, yeah. Behavior is communication. Now, my my buddy, you know, he's basically nonverbal. You have to figure out what that behavior is saying, and not just address uh, the fact of, oh, we're not going to get him another coat. You know, he's going to have to freeze for a few days. Right. No, you're going to have to figure out why he's throwing away his coats. Right. Or, or even saying, oh, it's just the autism, right? Exactly, exactly. That's not, that's not always, just because somebody has an autism spectrum disorder doesn't mean they don't feel anxiety, they don't deal with depression, they don't, right? They, they can experience exactly the same range of emotions. And, and, and mental health disorders, because who would not have met, uh, you know, developed some type of mental health disorder being treated like that when they were younger? Yeah. So not only do you have this 
uh, profound, uh, not only do you have profound autism, but now you've developed mental health disorders due to the fact of the way you were treated. And if you do not address the behavior as what is he trying to communicate, then he's going to continue to have those problems throughout his life. Right. Well, and it's it's interesting that you bring that up um, because we know that, right, instances of physical and sexual abuse are the highest among the population of people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. And, you know, the one mental health issue we don't talk about a whole lot with this population also is post-traumatic stress disorder, right? And that person that you, Charlie, that you mentioned, um, you know, being locked up with the dogs and stuff, how can he not be struggling with something like post-traumatic stress disorder? Um, And just like anybody else who goes through a traumatic experience, he needs the supports and the, yeah, and, and the structure to really process that, those experiences and, you know, get on with his life. That's, yeah, that's an amazing story. Was that in was that in Pocatello too? Yes, uh huh. It was, and and you know if they would have had somebody that was not only um, not only understood a person with a developmental disability, but also had mental health. Um, what would you say? Mental health experience or an experience in treating somebody with mental health, if they would have had somebody there, um, maybe he wouldn't be doing this type of behavior, or at least they would have figured out why he's doing the behavior. And for all I know, Matt, you know, I'm here now. For all I know, he may be still experiencing or doing those behaviors. And they may have gotten worse because they don't have anybody looking into the fact of why he's doing the behaviors. They're not looking at behavior as a a communication. He's communicating something. Right. Right. That's a, that is such a good point. I'm so glad that you brought that up because I think we overlook that so so frequently that behavior is communication. And behavior is one of the primary ways that we communicate that we're not feeling well. <laughs> exactly. And people just assume that that especially my brothers and sisters who, who, and I call them my brothers and sisters because of the fact that they share kind of the same experiences that I have. So I say, especially my brothers and sisters who experience and have to deal with each and every day an intellectual disability. Um, They automatically assume it has something to do with that disability. They don't look at the fact that maybe over here 10 years ago, they were sexually abused by one of their aides. You know, even if they know about it, they don't look at that fact. They don't know. They don't look at the fact that, hey, maybe it's it's post-traumatic stress. We need to look at this. No, you're exactly right. It's so it's so important and it's so powerful coming from um, somebody who's lived that experience. So I appreciate your. Yeah your perspective and your experience, James. Um, so I'm trying to see what other questions do we have? Any other 
Any other thoughts? I'm trying to be mindful of your time because I know you've got an appointment here at 1.15. I guess I would say that please do not just look at the developmental disability. I mean, if you just look at that, my friends and I will never, never live a full life. Yeah. Um, and I don't want to end on a low note, if you will, but it is a problem, a, a systemic, is that the word? Yeah. A systemic problem yep. that needs to be addressed. And I think that colleges that treat, that teach mental health and counseling mm -hmm. Uh, need to start having classes on how to treat people with intellectual and developmental disabilities to look past those and to look at behave at behaviors. Yep. Because some of us cannot communicate, and yep. some of us some of us that do have no idea what's going on. And if you just treat it as something to do with our developmental disabilities or yep. our intellectual disabilities then we'll never live a full life. Yeah. Oh, I think you're, yeah, you're exactly right in that point that we need to start training professionals. Um, it's not just training professionals. It's also making sure that the tools that professionals use are accessible, right? And meet the needs of a person with a disability. Um, you know, a lot exactly. of the diagnostic criteria and the tests and everything else they do um, aren't going to work, right? For somebody who struggles with reading or somebody who, yeah, who, who doesn't communicate. In you know, I never thought about that, but that's, that's more than likely the, one of the reasons why they go right to our developmental disability or intellectual disability, because a lot of us can't take those tests. Mm -hmm. So where's the starting point or where do we start? And they stop there too. They don't look at the fact that, hey, this person may be bipolar. They may be uh, um, schizophrenic or they may be, oh, what are they, borderline personality disorder. Oh. You know, they don't look at that fact. They look at the facts of the, the, what's going on when you're talking about intellectual development of disabilities because they have no way to gauge what it is because like you said, no tools to really access for some of us. Yep, yep. So it is, it is an issue of accessibility, I think. Um, really being able to create tools that are gonna help with getting more accurate diagnoses. So let me ask you one last question here, because I'm curious. Uh, you, you kind of touched on it, but I wanna, um, yeah, I wanna go back to COVID. So during the COVID pandemic, you, you were in the facility. Were you allowed to go outside? Oh, no, wait a minute. We weren't allowed to go outside. The first time, believe it or not, the first time I was able to go outside was when I spent um, basically Christmas and the, the holiday season. Um, I was diagnosed with COVID for the second time yeah. on Christmas Eve. And I was shipped to the, the unit. Um, and one of the administrators here, one of the, uh, I don't know what unit managers I've become, we've developed a, a very close relationship with. And he basically made me uh, take my power chair. Because right. I don't want you just laying around. 
because yeah. he'd known that I had been having some struggles. Yeah. And so they let me outside. I mean, it was colder than hell, but they let me outside and let me kind of cruise around. I had to cruise around in a certain area. I couldn't run into people and whatnot, but I could cruise around. Yeah. And up until it got really bad, I was able to cruise around outside. But when it got really bad, no, yeah. I could not cruise around for like, what, two or three months. That had to be hard. I mean, you mentioned earlier how important social interaction is for you and your mental health and being not being able to go out and talk to people and get outside. See oh, you. yeah. That had to be really challenging. I had a, I have a certain... Uh, loop that I make and it's into the rehab area and everything else like that and when they and rehab and long term and all over uh, saying hi to people you know the staff and whatnot and when they cut off they separated rehab and long term uh, that drove me crazy I just when when are they gonna open it? When are they gonna open it up? When are they gonna open it up? <laughs> Cut off half of your social support network. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's cutting it in half. It's like, wait a minute. Yeah. <laughs> well, I appreciate you taking time to to visit with me, James. I know we've been trying to do this for a while. And, and I appreciate your honesty and candor with sharing your experience today. Um, sure. I know it, these are not always easy things to talk about, but I do, I do think that hearing you talk about it hopefully is going to make others feel more comfortable speaking about their mental health challenges. And hopefully, we'll encourage folks to go out and find right the need, the supports that they need to to stay healthy. Well, thank you very much. I really yeah. appreciate it being here. You bet. You bet. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Mental Health Crossroads podcast. Visit our website at mhddcenter.org or follow us on social media at mhddcenter for more. Thank you.